Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most hideous, the most gruesome, the most outlandish, the most brutal high-profile homicide cases occurring in Maryland, they are discussed, let's run up the steps, they are profiled, and they are examined. As I stated for this season, season nine, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. That is the scripture in Romans 12, 19 through 21, or Deuteronomy 32, 35, depending on whatever Bible you're using, and vengeance or revenge, that is the topic for this season. They say that uh, revenge is a dish served cold, and these next cases of revenge murders they did not fall, fail to deliver. They delivered just that. And these next cases of revenge homicides occurring in Maryland, they had a clear motive of revenge or basically a motive where I'm going to pay you back for whatever I feel that you did to me. It's like I owe you one. Some people just cannot, they cannot let things go. They cannot move on. They would rather just happily spend the rest of their lives in prison than to just let shit go and move on, no matter the consequences. And um, this episode's case of revenge homicide that I'm going to profile is the bold and the brazen murder of Baltimore detective Thomas G. Newman. And just like I've done in every single episode, every single episode of this podcast, a portion of this podcast will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because it's now considered a cold case. In every single episode of this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is given to families, I mean, I'm given to homicides that may have received a lot of attention and notoriety or press. On the flip side, this podcast also has a goal in assisting in any unsolved homicide that needs to be solved. Um, And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 22-year-old Tion DeCarlos Jones. As I stated earlier, the topic is revenge, people. Revenge. And in all my years of researching murders and why they do what they do and trying to get into the mindset of a murderer and the mindset of, like, why they are, you know, the way they are, like, what pushes people to kill, I've never seen a more clear case of revenge homicide than this next case that I'm going to discuss right here. I've never seen it. You know, being a police officer or detective, especially in Baltimore City, it's already a tough job. No matter what y'all want to say about cops or whatever, especially that whole period where everybody was hating on cops and stuff like that, no matter what you want to say, y'all know being a police officer or detective, especially in Baltimore City, is already a tough job. That statement, that's an understatement, actually. I've never, I mean, I never wanted to be a cop. I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I came real close, real, real close to becoming a project cop 
years ago. If y'all can remember, um, y'all remember Project Cops? <laughs> if you're from Baltimore or from Maryland or back when they had the high-rise projects like Flag House, Murphy Homes, or Lexington Terrace, like the one where I was from, um, they it was the shit was so rough that they had their own security force. I wouldn't even call it security force. They were called Project Cops. Um, Housing Authority Police, basically. Um... And I, I think I had to have been about um, 20, 19, 20, or 21. And I had, even back then, I had an interest an interest in law enforcement and getting close to, um, you know, criminals and stuff like that. It wasn't really, I wasn't really a fan of police, but I wanted to become a homicide detective. Like, I felt like, who didn't? But <laughs> every homicide detective that I ever encountered... Um, would always tell me that in order to do that, you had to become a police officer first. And I was like, nah, I do not want to be a cop. But, you know, the danger of it and all that other stuff. I don't want to enforce no rules and laws. But anyway, I turned down the project cop role because even that was too much like being a police officer, but only for people living in the projects. <laughs> anyway, so I said... I said all of that. I said no to that and basically became a CO or a correctional officer instead. <laughs> but anyway, back to the topic at hand. Being a cop or detective in Baltimore City, like I said, it's no easy gig. And cops or detectives, they do not get paid enough for what they do, if you ask me. I mean, for some people... A, a, a cop can be a target as soon as they put their uniform on just because somebody might wake up one day and just don't like police. And for most police officer officers, becoming a cop is like a dream. It's like a calling. It's like a purpose. It's something that they've been wanting to do their whole life. Uh, Detective Thomas G. Newman, he was one of those people. Uh, known as Teddy to his friends and co-workers, Detective Newman was from uh, Prince George's County. After Thomas graduated from Crossland High School in Temple Hills in Prince George's County in 1983, Thomas went on to the Army two years later in 1985. And five years later, Thomas joined the Baltimore City Police Department in 1990 as a police officer. And he was a member of the Warrant Apprehension Task Force, which I know for a fact um, that's a, one of the most dangerous, uh, divisions of the police department. I mean, think about what you're doing. You're tracking down people that got warrants that have basically been avoiding turning themselves in or going to court, but it was a job that Thomas loved. After over 10 years of, uh, being a police officer on the night of April 21st, 2001, Detective Newman, um, was on basically he was off duty when he drove his s10 pickup into an amico gas station on cherry hill road and waterview avenue in south baltimore around 2 30 in the morning to get some gas and some sodas and once thomas hopped out of his truck to go walk in the store two men they started harassing him acting like they was going to rob him or whatnot you know, when you walk in the gas station, people get behind you. They might be saying stuff and all this stuff where you can just, you got a feeling that some shit ain't going, some shit about to go down. Doing shit like that. 
and see like Thomas he he warned the men that he was a cop. He was like, look, I ain't for it, but see, that shit ain't even stopped him. Like, some people could be drunk, high, or whatever. That's just the mentality of Baltimore niggas. But that ain't stopped him. And one of the men showed Thomas that he was like, yo, I got a gun too. And he wasn't scared. He wasn't threatened because he was a police officer. That's the mentality. When the two men left the store, Officer Newman called 911, probably because he had that feeling. He requested backup. And he followed the men as they drove um, a dark red Mazda MPV. Y'all remember MPVs was like the ultimate drive-by vehicle back in the 90s. But anyway, they parked it um, at Salerno Place in Westport, which is like not too far from the Amical, um gas station, if you're familiar with Westport, Cherry Hill area. But what Thomas didn't know was that the two men wasn't even in the van no more. And they had been watching him and they waiting for the they was waiting for him to show up so thomas was on the phone with a 911 dispatcher when all of a sudden the sound of gunfire erupted thomas was shot twice in the back of his neck but he still managed to get out of his car and fire his weapon at his shooters the officer he didn't manage he didn't shoot nobody like he didn't hit nobody and they got away they left thomas wounded and bleeding in the street in no time, the shooters were caught, and Thomas managed to make a slow but full recovery after being shot twice in the neck. With the bullet still lodged in his body, Thomas bravely testified in court what happened on the night he was shot, and both of the cop shooters were convicted of attempted second-degree murder, and both of them, both of the, both of the shooters, both of them got 30 years in prison for the brazen and bold shooting of the officer. Now, think about what happened. He in the store, supposedly minding his business. Um, they harassing him. Um, either way, uh, they shot him twice in the neck. So, all he thing he did was test, went to court and testified about what happened. Now, you would think that case closed, everything's over... Signed, sealed, and delivered, right? Not quite. B-more just don't get down like that. And B-more niggas are born and bred differently. I, I kid you not. Thomas, the officer, managed to maintain. And sometimes in his spare time, um, he went to his favorite bar. And he even served as like that part-time security guard at the bar because, you know, he was an officer and stuff like that. Chit-chatting, talking and all of that. So for about four years, Thomas had been like a regular customer at this bar, making friends with the owner and everything, stuff like that. Um, he was a detective now because he started working for the fraud, the fraud division. Detective Newman had been like recovering. He was still in lingering pain, which I can't even imagine like even coming back. But on the night of November the 23rd, 2002, just eight months after his original shooters got sentenced to 30 years in prison, Thomas was with his girlfriend at his favorite bar, Joe's Tavern, in the 1000 block of Dundalk Avenue in Dundalk a little before noon. And enjoying himself at the bar, one of Thomas Thomas's shooters, the half, his half brother, was at the bar too, and he saw that like he saw Tom, he saw the cop, 
and he remembered him as being a cop who had testified on his brother for shooting him. 22-year-old Raymond Sanders, who was from the 800 block of 5th Avenue in Healthrook, was the half-brother of one of Thomas's original shooters. And as soon as he saw Officer Newman, uh, or Detective Newman, chilling at the bar, minding his own business, he left out to let two of his other friends know, like, guess what? He probably was like, I'm down here at the bar, and guess who I see? That cop who my brother tried to kill or whatever. The one who testified and said this and said that. And guess what? You can catch him down here at the bar slipping because he down here drinking. You know, so whatever y'all want to do, he down here at the bar. So anyway, 21-year-old Javon House, who was from the 2000 block of Dorton Court, and 34-year-old Anthony Brown, who was from the 1000 block of North Chapel Street, uh, they both hooked up with Raymond, and all three of them headed back to the bar with literally just one mission on their mind. To finish what was started a year ago. I mean, I don't know what this cop could have said or did that was so bad that they was determined to shoot him, to kill him so bad. But all three of the men waited for Officer Newman to, or Detective Newman to leave the bar. And when he did, without a word, Raymond and Javon walked up to Officer Newman with, with guns in hands and both boldly opened fire on the officer with no hesitation. I keep saying officer, but it's detective. Detective Newman fell to the ground, and when he did, these two killers stood over the cop and pumped even more bullets into his body to make sure that this time Detective Newman would not be going home. After shooting the detective, Raymond and Javon jumped in a car that Anthony was driving and drove down the street. A security guard who was at the bar saw and heard the shots and he actually grabbed Thomas's gun and shot at the um, shooters, even got in his car and chased him down, firing his gun the whole time, but shoot nobody. The security guard chased them down until he saw them driving to like um, the O'Donnell Heights housing projects um, and jumped out the car and took off on foot. Then... Um, the shoot, like, when after this happened, <laughs> man, I mean, this this brought on swarms of police, and Detective Newman was rushed to the John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center in East Baltimore, but despite all of the doctor's efforts, despite all this treatment and everything they could do this time, the officer died about 30 minutes after he was rushed to the hospital, with three gunshot wounds in his chest and at least one shot to the head. The two killers shot this cop with one, I mean, each of them had guns. One had a 32 caliber handgun and the other one had a nine millimeter, millimeter handgun. And this was like an execution in the middle of the day in broad daylight in front of Thomas's girlfriend and numerous witnesses. That's Baltimore. Detective Newman was taken away from his girlfriend. Um... His two children, he had a six-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. And he had been with the Baltimore City Police Department for about 12 years. And at the time of his um, murder, like I said, he had been a detective with the fraud unit. He was a worker who worked at the bar. He gave a statement to the press that said, in his words, you couldn't find a better person 
he never drank very much and he liked to smoke a cigar now and then. I'm telling you, he, he was a prince. Um, Thomas was a fan of the then Washington Redskins and according to his co-workers, Thomas was a fearless officer with a playful sense of humor who sometimes called himself Superman. Let me tell you something. The Baltimore City Police Department do not play. Especially when you basically just annihilate one of their officers, one of their own, in broad daylight. And especially during an ambush. In no time whatsoever, the same day actually, in just 10 minutes after Detective Newman was ambushed, Javon was found hiding in a utility shed in O'Donnell Heights wearing a black shoulder gun holster. To make matters worse uh, for Javon, when the police uh, searched the shed that Javon was hiding in, they found one of the guns that was used to kill the officer. Both Raymond and Anthony were found by the police by the middle of the morning. And of course, the police found the 9mm that was also that also was used to kill the officer. Arrested and held without bail, 22-year-old Raymond Sanders, 21-year-old Javon House, and 34-year-old Anthony Brown were all charged in the first-degree murder of the detective. The bold and brazen murder of Detective Newman set off a new wave of fear over people and residents already living in fear in the city of Baltimore. I mean, this is why people who live here, why we call it Bodymore Murderland, because these killers here just don't give a fuck. When are y'all going to get that? I mean, not one fuck was given. They knew he was a cop. They knew they wouldn't get away with it. Um, They knew they would not get away with shooting a cop in broad daylight, but they just did not care. They did not care. That is the mentality of growing up and living in Bodymore Murderland. This murder set off intense anger within the, the, the police department also because, you know, they were like, what? And the president of the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 3, he gave a statement to the press expressing the sentiments of almost everybody. He was like, the prosecution should ask for the death penalty. And he said he should ask for the death penalty in this case because... These killers, they knew that Thomas was a cop and that basically Thomas was killed simply because of his law enforcement duties. According to articles in the Baltimore Sun, in his words, um, he said, there is no wiggle room here. He was killed because he was a cop and these scum deserve the death penalty. The state's attorney's office, apparently they agreed and for a while, Raymond did face the death penalty, making this case the, the first time that um, the death penalty had been pursued in at least six years, back when we had the death penalty in the state. Uh, but to avoid a death sentence, Raymond, he just went on and, and pled guilty to first-degree murder. Even though Raymond um, pled guilty to first-degree murder, his lawyers was trying to say that... Um, the prosecutors, they couldn't, since they, the prosecution couldn't really prove that um, Detective uh, Newman was murdered in the line of duty, that somehow that this particular murder, it shouldn't even qualify for the death penalty. 
because, you know, um, it wasn't like he was in a line of duty. It wasn't like he was act doing like his cop roles. So that shouldn't count for the death penalty. Whatever. Even though Raymond's family, they said that, you know, Raymond, he started wilding out or acting out after his father died when he was 13. They said that um, he never really got over the death of his father. And eventually Raymond just quit school and he started following in the footsteps of an older brother and started selling drugs and blah, 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 blah. Still, Raymond's family was supposedly shocked at what Raymond did. And Raymond's grandmother released a statement to the press in her words saying, Through thick and thin, I taught them a lot of things and one of them was not to kill. He would not have done this. In the end, none of her words or none of that stuff really mattered because after Raymond pled guilty to killing uh, Detective Newman, Raymond was sentenced to two life sentences, one without the possibility for parole. At Raymond's sentencing hearing, uh, Raymond did offer up an apology. And he said he was sorry to Thomas's family. And that he basically, he nonchalantly said that he was ready to start serving his life sentences without the possibility of parole. In so many words, he was basically ready to spend the rest of his life in prison like it was nothing. Um, Jovan was a different story. His, Jovan's family, they struggled to believe that he was even capable of killing a cop. And Jovan's grandmother released a statement to the press saying, in her words, He's a very nice person. He is not violent. He was really struggling to do the right thing. And, <laughs> whatever. Jovan decided to take his case to trial. But the jury deliberated for only five hours before they found Jovan guilty of first-degree murder, like Raymond. Right after the guilty verdict was read, Thomas's sister yelled out in the courtroom, Thank you, Jesus. But Jovan's family yelled out, I love you, Jovan. <sighs> and according to articles in Baltimore Sun, like Raymond, Jovan too got a life sentence without the possibility for parole. As for the driver of the getaway car, Anthony Brown, his lawyer argued for leniency, talking about since his client wasn't one of the shooters, that for some reason he shouldn't be given that much time and he should be given some type of break or some type of deal. But the judge disagreed. And in March of 2005, like Raymond and Javon, Anthony too got a life sentence in prison without the possibility for parole. At Anthony's sentencing, the assistant state's attorney was like, Anthony is a social reprobate with absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever and that Anthony had violated every parole he had ever been placed on during his adult life lifetime of lawlessness. Now, <clears throat> I selected this uh, homicide as one of Maryland's most notorious revenge cases because look at it. Look at the obvious. Like, damn. Um, I remember this one, and I too was one of those residents who lived in Baltimore and was just like, Damn, y'all can't protect your own? And the bold and brazenness of it, like I said, that the mentality of the dudes at Baltimore is just like, look, they don't, you know why people don't fear, fear prison? Because prison is not what you think. And for a lot of inmates, trust and believe 
Like they cannot deal without living on the outside. They can't. It's too hard. It it is it's paying bills, it's it's staying alive, it's surviving, and it's actually easier for them in prison to have your life completely regulated, to have somebody telling you when to get up, you know, when to turn the lights out or what you can eat and stuff like that. Or they could just be the big man in jail and a bitch on the outside. Like I told you, a lot of people, jail is not what you think. So it's a savior to some people. Life is actually harder for them um, out living free than it is in prison. So if you think you're trying to control crime, certain crimes and stuff like that in Baltimore, using prison as a deterrent, like think again. You know what works. Um, you know, like I said, this is the the mentality of most people that's in most of the killers that's in Bodymore Murderland. Uh, people don't they don't fear prison. Um, you know what they fear? They fear the death penalty. I don't know why it was abolished. You know, I, people ask me all the time with all the every knowledge and stuff that I talk about with homicides and crimes and stuff like that. Am I a fan of the death penalty? No, I'm not a fan of the death penalty. But I definitely believe an eye for an eye. I believe that there should be a death penalty in the state. Why is it? Why was it ever abolished? To tell you the truth. Um, but that's a whole another topic for a whole another podcast. And like I said, this particular case, you cannot get a more clearer case of revenge homicide. And unfortunately, a beloved officer or detective lost his life in one of the most dangerous professions on the face of this earth. Moving right into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on notorious homicide cases that may have received a lot of attention and press from the media, this podcast also shines a light on the many, many homicide cases that we see in the state of Maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or a lot or any mention in the press at all. These type of homicides are so common in Maryland that there's not really a lot of time in this podcast to just focus on one. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely, beautiful state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report of it. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, it's really mind-boggling. It's, it's obvious that homicide detectives are not magicians. They can't do everything by themselves. You know, solving homicide cases is not like what you might see on court TV or like the first 48. You know, that's summed up into like a 30 to 60 minute show. In the state of Maryland, it's not like that at all. Homicide detectives, they're often overworked. They're underpaid. They're stressed out. They're outnumbered. And they flat out beaten down sometimes. And, but it's like... Every time you turn around, it's like another case, another case, another case, another case. And what happens when all these cases where, you know, the cases where nobody's talking at all, where there's no ev evidence, there's no clues, what happens to the cases where there's nothing? Whatever happens when, you know, the cases, like you have a bunch of those that pile up. 
when there's no evidence, no clear motive, no clues, um, or cases because of, you know, what happens, you know, the cases where the victims, because of their past, um, their past life or their current lifestyle, stuff like that. It just seems like those type of cases get brushed to the side because, you know, it just seems like they're not really being investigated right because uh, it just seems like, you know, they, they might be thinking they had it coming. Like, what happened to those little type of homicide cases? Is it really, did the killers really just, like, get away with murder? Is it? Like nothing, it just seems like nothing is done with these type of forgotten homicides. Not because nobody cares about them no more, but because the public, we just simply forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by new homicides. I mean, I swear it's almost like we have become completely immune to homicides in this state. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk a lot about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety and press. On the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserved. And with all that being said, this episode's Unsolved Homicide is the shooting murder of 22-year-old Tayan DeCarlos Jones. On August the 7th, 2011, 18-year-old Tian DeCarlos Jones was at a crowded house party in the 2000 block of Lower Court in Crofton celebrating what was his last few days of partying before he was to begin his senior year of college when all of a sudden shots rang out at the party and Tayon was hit in his upper body. Three of Tayon's companions drove him to Baltimore Washington Medical Center where they dropped him off. Tayon was later transported to University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center. Prince George's County uh, Police responded to the house after further investigation a little after 2 a.m., but nobody had nothing to say, and apparently nobody saw nothing. Tayon, who was from the 8,000 block of Fine Fern Avenue in Glen Burnie, was paralyzed from the neck down as a result of being shot and he managed to live with his injuries despite being in constant pain for five years and on Saturday, November 21st, 2015, around 8.20 p.m., Tayon died from the injuries that he had sustained from being shot five years prior. Tayon's death was labeled a homicide as a result of complications from the original gunshot injury. After Tayon died, his mother released a statement to the press saying in her words, Tayon was a forgiven person. He forgave them in three days. I have to let this person know, whoever did this, we forgive you. We just want you to come forward because this tore our family apart. Please, anybody, I don't care who it is. You don't have to let them know who you are. Just tell them what happened. I agree. I agree with this woman. I mean, you don't have to tell them who you are. And you can't remain anonymous. To me, that's easy. I mean, so if you have any information at all that you would like to provide in this unsolved homicide, 
please call 410-222-1731 or 410-222-4700 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send a text message to MCS plus whatever your text message is to C-R-I-M-E-S, which is crimes, or 274637 on your numeric keypad. Once again, once again, those numbers are 410-222-1731 or 410-222-4700 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send a text message to MCS plus whatever your text message is to C-R-I-M-E-S, which is crimes, or on your numeric keypad, that is 274637. There is a $10,000 reward for any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide. And yes, you can remain anonymous, people. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access prior episodes, let me mention that if you tuned into me at all last season, I did tell my listeners that I was producing a true crime documentary that was based off of my very first episode, the episode that profiled accused child killers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. And yes, the documentary is now currently available. It was supposed to be shown on Hulu, Tubi, and all of that, but because of the extreme graphic nature of the documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading murders of three innocent kids, networks, they kind of shied away from that. They told me virtu- they told me basically that the documentary was too graphic, it was too much for network TV, so nobody want to see any dead kids, and I guess because the documentary does include... Um, you know, footage from the actual crime scene and stuff like that. I don't know why y'all thought that that was too much, but you can show everything else on TV. Uh, I, I refuse to pull or to doc, to edit it any more than what I've already done. So, um, I mean, I looked at it like the brutal nature of the crime scene. Um, the photos, the video, everything adds to the emphasis of the innocence of Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. And in order for me to fully emphasize the fact that they did not commit this horrible homicide, I'm sorry, I had to show what was done to these kids with no sugarcoating, no censoring. And there's no way the victim's uncle and cousin committed these murders that were act that were extremely, extremely brutal. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see who I believe these murders, what, you know, what really happened. Either way... The documentary is available via email only, and it's not for everybody's eyes, I will agree. And this documentary was, it was not produced to make money, or to get likes, or to up the views, or anything like that, which is another reason why I didn't choose that network route. I can't, and I will not be censored, that's not why I'm here, that's not why I do this, especially when it comes to true crime, and facts about what really happened and an injustice that is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, please visit my website at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com and Marilyn is spelled um, MDS and 
you can subscribe to the mailing list by leaving your email address and send me a specific request that you would like to see the documentary and I will email it to you via a link called we transfer it'll be a separate link that comes uh called we transfer i think they give you like uh either 48 hours or a week to download it and after that it goes away um the video it will be and i'll i'll send you the link to, to see the documentary within 24 hours i respond but i have to warn you though the video is very graphic and like I said, Hulu and Tubi and YouTube, even YouTube told me no because of its graphic content. I'm like, YouTube? And also because, to be honest, I truly believe that with the state of the world that we live in, um, they felt like I'm opening up a can of worms. It, it, it's like nobody cares that these two, these two illegal immigrants are locked up, basically serving life sentences for crimes that they didn't commit. Like, nobody gives a shit. And... That's why I produced the documentary also to open up people's eyes, their eyes about what's really going on. Like, what are we really doing? Either way, if you want to see the documentary, send me a link. I mean, send me um, an email, send me a message um, via my website, website, com. Tell me you specifically want to see um, the documentary. I'll email it to you via a WeTransfer link. And you should be able to click on it and see exactly what I'm talking about. And while you're at it, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising, eye popping, blood curdling episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then out of nowhere, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast. (laughs) Nope. That's not even like that. There is a method, a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem and guts and all that stuff that I live in that have been living in for a while. And if you click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so wired so weird, so crazy, so fascinated with tree crime. And while you're on my webpage, which is, again, Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders.com, Marilyn is spelled MDS, be sure to check out any prior episodes that you may have missed with all of the different seasons that we have focused on, like uh, relationship uh, murders, suicide murders, sick twisted pedophile or sex related type of murders which that kind of put me out of commission for a minute because I had to take a break after that one I ain't gonna lie or even parasite killings like the focus was for last season you can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled um Maryland's Most Notorious Murders 1990 through 2008 Maryland's Unsolved Homicides Volume 1 and my local bestseller um, until I get caught, the true story of a serial rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, a true Baltimore story. You can also check me out on season one of Payback, which airs for the TV One Network. Um, you can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can see me on TV One's Justice by Any Means, where I did profile my particular story. Um, my particular true crime story, 
Um, you can check me out on Fatal Attraction, TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, uh, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong, who were also profiled for this podcast. I believe it was season four? Could be wrong. It's been nine seasons now, so... Or you can check me out on um, the latest article that I did for the Crime Report, where I'm also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast. And last but not least, many of my listeners and, um, um, I guess, readers, they have been messaging me um, on social media how they can donate to this podcast. (laughs) Um, On my website, Maryland's Most... uh, Maryland's most notorious murders.com. There is a donate icon on the website where you can contribute via PayPal, Anchor, what's it, Coffee, or the Buy Me a Coffee icons. Um, thanks so much if you want to support. That's what keeps this podcast moving on, and also what will produce more documentaries and stuff like that. So please be sure to, uh, you know, support if you want to. If you don't, no problem. But anyway, um, please, please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland. It will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. And this has been a Savage Life production.